Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you that we can again uh, come to uh, sit under your word and to learn from you. Pray that your spirit would be active and working in our hearts and minds, illumining these scriptures to us so that we may understand them. And Father, in understanding, we pray that it would work out even into our actions, all of our thoughts, our deeds. Father, may we honor you with obedient hearts and obedient actions. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it, it shows us yourself, that it shows us your son, that it shows us the spirit. And Father, that we can see our Savior in these pages very clearly. And so, Father, bless us again uh, by uh, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're back in Galatians this morning. So if you want to grab your Bibles or your phones or your, your tablets, open up to uh, Galatians chapter 1. Last time we went through the overview of Galatians, uh, its location, the churches that the Apostle Paul was ministering to, and you'll remember that it's modern-day Turkey, and uh, especially the southwestern portion of Turkey, um, where the, the Galatian, well, the Galatian region is, is huge, but um, some of the cities that are referred to in Acts are along that southwestern part of, of uh, modern-day Turkey and the uh, Galatian and Cappadocian region, Antioch being one of those major cities in the uh, southwest of Turkey. So we, we went through that and just got oriented as far as location. It's always good to... Um, to remember that we're not talking about um, Europe or America, we're talking about uh, the Middle East. Uh, Galatians is the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. As we go through the book, that will become fairly obvious, and um, we'll, uh, we'll dig in there. Uh, Luther said, you remember that it was his Katie Von Bora, that's the name of his wife. He loved this book, and he said he was wedded to it. And so that's where we started last time. And then we read through the book, we got a flavor for it. Now we're going to look at the first chunk. So let's begin here with the first verse. Paul, an apostle not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. All right, so that's sort of the, the introduction, the salutation, the uh, this is from and to, and here's the thrust of the book, an introduction to uh, the book. So, um, where is the first mention of the Apostle Paul? Let's think, of, we're, we're just going to focus on who is the Apostle Paul. Where is the first mention of the Apostle Paul in the Scriptures? Okay. Actually, the, the, the same chapter, right? And wh- what chapter do we read about Stephen being martyred? Acts chapter 7, yes. But jump down to 54 of chapter 7. This is after the deacon Stephen is preaching before the Sanhedrin, um, really going after them. He goes through the history of Israel and concludes his sermon with these words, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. So he's accusing the Pharisees and Sadducees, the, the, the council, of not keeping the law of God and, have murdering, and having murdered the prophets who spoke of Jesus Christ. So they're not, yeah, yeah. You can interrupt me. Well, they all said you murdered Jesus. They all said that. I mean, that's a theme through these early sermons. Mm-hmm. And so um, they don't exactly respond favorably. We pick up at 54 of Acts 7. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. Can you imagine that? An assembly in, the, in a semicircle around him, he's addressing them, and they just all start rushing down toward him. But they cried out with a loud voice, covering their ears, rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's the Apostle Paul. So what's the deal with him being called Saul? Well, he likely had, it's it's not, you may have heard that, you know, when he was converted, he received the name the Apostle Paul. 
that's probably not true. He probably just had a Roman and a Jewish name. He was Jewish and he was born in a Roman city, and so he was probably Saulus, um, Paulos of Antioch, or something like that. So he, he likely had a Jewish and a Roman name, and so when he's sent out as an apostle to the Gentiles, obviously he's going to prefer using the Roman name to the Jewish name, even though now when he's uh, when he's studying with Gamaliel, when he's going after Christians, and he's doing the work of the Sanhedrin, he's going to be using his Jewish name. And so that's an explanation of the switch that we get from Saul to Paul. And one place I read said that Paul, Apollos means little. I don't know if that's true. I didn't look it up, but um, and the, the comment they made was that he preferred, it was sort of him boasting in his weakness, you know, using that diminutive sort of name for himself. I don't know. But there he is, Stephen is testifying about the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is a violent persecutor of the church, doing the work of the Sanhedrin. As the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees and Pharisees are rushing down and killing Stephen, Paul is thrilled with what's happening. He wants this blasphemer's mouth shut. And, of course, they stone Stephen to death as a martyr. And Paul is there, you know, taking care of their robes so that they can be free to cast stones at um, blessed Stephen. Meanwhile, Stephen, by the grace of God, is given visions of the heavenly places when he is even dying. You know, he's seeing Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And then 59, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Now think of the apostle Paul witnessing those words, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It would be a, a, a complicated reaction to that, wouldn't it? Complicated because here he is very much supporting the stoning of a blasphemer. And this blasphemer is crying out on their behalf that the Lord would forgive them. And, of course, Paul will shortly learn that Jesus said the same thing from the cross. And that Stephen is just, just following his Savior. Um, you know. And so the Apostle Paul here would have been enraged by these words. Um, how dare he say that, you know, this is even sin? We are doing the this is the work of God. This is righteousness. To put to death the blasphemer is righteousness. Why in the world would would he call it sin? So the apostle or the apostle Paul um, then in eight one it says Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul 
began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. So the Apostle Paul was being, was being used by the council to enter houses, find out who believed, dragging them off and, putting, and locking them up in prison, uh, simply for their faith. In, the, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says of himself in that letter to, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 9, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So he looks back on his life and he sees, you know, all of us look back on our lives and see sin and are ashamed of that and regret that sin and cry out to God for forgiveness. Paul looked back, and what grieved his heart was that he persecuted the very church he was now serving. He persecuted Jesus, whom he then became uh, an apostle, a sent one of. And he doesn't just mention that one time. He mentions that also in the first chapter of Galatians and, and grieves it. For you have heard of my former manner of life. This is Galatians 1.13. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, summoned, you know, summoned, it's an, yeah, we'll get to that. And called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. And then he goes on to tell where he went and who he stayed with before he began preaching the gospel in earnest. And so he was converted around the year 33 AD. In Philippians, he says that he was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. You know, like grabbed by the scruff of the neck and moved into a new area, right? Yeah, he was blinded, he was, um, he was knocked down, and, uh, but he was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And so let's go to Acts 9. We're going to read Acts 9, and this is his conversion. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's, you know, I mean, he, he was... We know the Apostle Paul from his letters, right? His immense concern for the churches, his compassion toward the people of God. He was the farthest thing you can conceive of before his conversion. He breathed threats and murder. I'm going to kill you, Christian. He would enter into households and breathe murder at them. 
you're going to die, you blasphemer. That's the sort of lack of compassion that the apostle Paul or Saul had, right? And now um, he's trying to get the head honchos in Jerusalem and in Damascus and other places to give him the authority to drag people from their homes and put them in prison. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. Jesus, that name that he hated. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground. And though his eyes were opened, he could not see, and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. He was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may, might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, uh, Saul? <laughs> um, we thinking of the same guy? Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. Oh man. Immediately after his baptism, boom, he's back at the synagogue teaching them from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the son of God. This man that I met. This man this God-man that I have seen, he is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this, not the, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name 
and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas... Think of that, Barnabas. Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren heard of it, They brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. So there's there's the situation of Paul's conversion. There's so much in there that we could... We could settle on and talk about what strikes you in this whole conversion. Yeah. Would you ask the question, what is Saul Well, yeah, he was always Saul Paul. That's what I said. <laughs> and Paul, or Paul Saul. I don't know. But he, he was converted, right? He's, he's pre-Holy Spirit and post-Holy Spirit indwelling. Yeah. The Holy Spirit comes upon him, and suddenly, what does the Holy Spirit reveal? The Holy Spirit reveals that he has gotten everything in his life wrong, and that Jesus, whom he zealously persecuted, is the one that he must zealously worship and serve, right? That change. Some of us have experienced that change. You were a blasphemer against God, and the Holy Spirit worked in your heart, And suddenly your eyes were opened and the scales fell off and you recognized Jesus as very God, a very God, the Son of of God, right? The one, 
and the only one by whom your sins may be forgiven, right? That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's what the Holy Spirit revealed. That's what the Holy Spirit did in the Old Testament, right? And the, the Old Testament saints looked at the sacrifices, and by the Spirit's work in them, they believed by faith that there was a coming Messiah who would be like those sacrifices taking away their sins. And then post the cross, we look back upon that. But the Spirit's work is the same in every age. The Spirit reveals the Lord Jesus Christ. So what else, what else sticks out to you in this passage? Anything strike you? Yeah, yeah, I mean, and that's, you know, that's a, that whole idea that at conversion, our personalities, our temperaments are not overridden by the Holy Spirit. At points, some of our sins are overridden and done away with and removed from us. They can be. Other times, our sanctification is a slow, long burn, and we're slowly transformed, but our temperaments generally stay the same. And that gets us in trouble, and it, it also does some good. You know, the, the Apostle Peter's writings are different than Paul's, not because the Holy Spirit, you know, um, didn't inspire them, but because their personalities and temperaments come through in their writing. Um, this is not, we don't have a dictation theory of the inspiration of scriptures, right? The, these were men and their personalities as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, right? And so, um, so these, these guys, their, their temperaments come through in what they're writing. And you see the temperament of Paul um, really more than, than the other apostles, as he pours out his heart to the churches that he's ministering to, especially in Galatians, as Galatians is the, the one book of his letters that doesn't start with much commendation at the beginning of the book. It's just kind of like, boom, right into the task at hand. You're, you know, I, I'm amazed you are deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. That's verse 6, <laughs> you know. And so he's going after them. Now think about the fact that God had called the Apostle Paul from the womb. Like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, right? They testified of the same thing, those prophets. The Apostle Paul was called from the womb, and yet God allowed him for a number of decades to be a blasphemer against the church. God allowed him to pursue his studies with Gamaliel and his studies in the Jewish scriptures and his, his Pharisaism, he uh, allowed him, superintended over all of that training. And no doubt that part of that was certainly because he was going to go on and deal with what he's dealing with in the book of Galatians, which is Judaizers, those who were arguing that to become a Christian, you have to become a Jew first. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep the ceremonial law. You have to do those works. And so Paul knew that backward and forward. He had oriented his life around the ceremonial laws. That's what he was extremely zealous about. And then his first letter, the earliest letter we have, 
is this one where he's like, circumcision counts for nothing. It's amazing, right? It's completely contrary to his previous life. But it's just, but for a time, even though he was called before he was out of his mother's womb to be an apostle, God allowed him this time of being a blasphemer. Um, Calvin on this says, This deserves our careful attention, for it shows us that we owe it to the goodness of God, not only that we have been elected and adopted to everlasting life, but that he deigns to make use of our services who would otherwise have been altogether useless, and that he assigns to us a lawful calling in which we may be employed. What had Paul, before he was born, to entitle him to so high an honor? In like manner, we ought to believe that it is entirely the gift of God and not obtained by our own industry that we have been called to govern the church, speaking of pastors and elders in that. You know, um, so Paul mentions this, that he was set apart even from his mother's womb. And what we're going to notice in the first two chapters is Paul has a, the Apostle Paul is defending his authority. This is what he does for the first two chapters, because the Judaizers are coming in and say, don't listen to the Apostle Paul. They're probably saying, look, did he see the Lord? I mean, did he really see the Lord? Did he, he wasn't one of the men who spent three years with him, right? He's probably making up this story. I mean, they were probably saying all kinds of horrible things against the Apostle Paul. You can't trust the Apostle Paul. Remember, he was a persecutor of the church, and so the first thing that the Apostle Paul does here is defends his authority. And, and that is the first issue of the book. And so front and center is the authority of the Apostle Paul versus the authority of the Judaizers in the Galatian church that were peddling a different gospel. And so the Apostle Paul defends his apostleship because he wants the members of the church there to listen to him and accept his authority and turn away from usurped authority, bad authority, the authority that these Judaizers have taken on themselves without the call of God. So right off the bat, he begins doing that work. Um, and we see it here, Paul, an apostle, and then in our translation, it's in parentheses, which Greek didn't have parentheses. So it just runs right into this. It's part of the sentence. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And so he's, he's saying... I have my authority directly from Jesus Christ. That's where I have it. No other pastor or elder subsequent to the Apostle Paul can make that claim. Right? We have authority from God, 
but it is by the agency of men. Okay? The apostles were called directly by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That is the difference between pastors now and the apostles back then. They had their authority by, by Jesus giving it to them directly to their faces, and that's what, that's what the apostle Paul received that day on the road to Damascus, is that call from Jesus, that authority from Jesus. So what he's saying is, Look, I didn't get, I, I'm not in this position as an apostle because I've been sent by men. You know, this is, a, this is from God. And then when he says not through the agency of man, it's, it's not in the same fashion that a pastor is with the laying on of hands of presbytery, right? Ordination. That's through the agency of man. The authority I have comes through the agency of man when, when we are ordained. But the apostles know. They have authority straight from God, and that's where he starts. He says, you, ha- you must listen to me because this is not from men. This authority I have, this voice I have, what you'll hear from me is because I am an apostle. I have my authority from God. It's a specific office, not a generic term, apostle. It's not just... All sent ones are called apostles. No, this is a specific office in the church that no longer exists, okay? They were sent ones to get the church um, up and going. They were spreading the good news out to uh, Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Those set apart by Christ for the purpose of building the foundation of the church, that was their calling. There are two requirements, these are from Acts 1, of apostles. They must be eyewitnesses of the ministry of Jesus and chosen by the risen Christ himself. Okay? Those two things, eyewitnesses and chosen by the risen Lord. And so Paul had those qualifications, didn't he? Not in the same manner as the other apostles, but he had those qualifications. Paul had not been an eyewitness of, of Jesus' earthly ministry, but the, you know, the experience on the road to Damascus, does that qualify? Yeah, absolutely. Um, he had witnessed Christ and had a very short amount of training from him and been called by him after the resurrection. And so no man or group of men called him to be an apostle. Jesus did. He had a divine call, not simply a call from men, or a group of men alone. 1 Corinthians 9.1, he says, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And so in Corinthians, when he's defending his apostleship there, he says, look, I've seen him. I've seen him. And so the commission did not come from the church, but directly from Christ himself. And this point is going to be expanded in the, the first two chapters of, of the book. But I want to I read a little bit from Calvin. We'll close here. But I want to read one just so you hear Calvin's sermons and old sermons and how helpful they are. And uh, just 
what, the, what Calvin says on these first few verses about authority. Here's what he says. Let us first deal with the statements pertaining to Paul's authority. He says that he is an apostle, not of men, neither by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. First of all, let us observe that Paul's foundation is the decree and ordinance of God, and that therefore his message ought to have been received. For indeed, no man can take this honor unto himself in the church, but he who is called of God, as we have seen before. Our faith is too weak by far if we rely upon men, however honorably or worthy they may be. Even if they possessed a more than angelic perfection, it would count for nothing. Faith is so precious that we must be careful that it is completely grounded upon God and His truth. Since this is the case, it is not enough for a man to be refined or knowledgeable or to have seen and heard and done many things if he wishes to be heard. For these things are as useful as a wisp of smoke with regard to reaching the kingdom of heaven. Deep wisdom and great learning matter nothing. All this is but another of Satan's deceptions. We know what the Bible says about all human wisdom. It is utter foolishness and God laughs at it. It is an abomination in his sight because it hinders obedience. Therefore, everything that is of man and of the creature must be considered base and vile. Indeed, concerning teaching, the church needs a well-ordered system which is approved by God. For if men push themselves forward in this area... God will withdraw all the more, and this will result in total confusion. We must therefore pay attention to what Paul tells us here. He has nothing to offer in and of himself in order to earn a position of authority, but he has been called by God. This is the first point. Furthermore, we must remind ourselves that Paul was not, like so many fools, carelessly boasting. In their preaching, they loudly proclaim that God has sent them when, in fact, they are imposters. Yes, even agents of Satan sent to bring destruction. However, Paul not only protests that he has been called, but also wishes to demonstrate the reality of the fact, as we have said. It was quite well known that he had been miraculously converted to the gospel and that he had received his teaching immediately. God had worked in a surprising and unusual way in Paul's life. There had also been direct revelation to two or three men in the city of Antioch that Paul was to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And not only this, everywhere he went, people could see evidence of the fact because God openly displayed his own power in Paul. Thus, when he declares here that he is an apostle, he presupposes that it had already been confirmed to some extent that it was God who had appointed him to that office and that he had not taken it under false pretenses. But we know how eager men are to seek self-advancement. Thus, it is our duty to differentiate between Paul and all those who falsely boasted and bragged that they were sent by God. The same applies to us today, he writes, for the Pope. In order to deceive this poor world of ours and maintain his unlawful and hellish oppression, claims to be the vicar of Jesus Christ in direct succession to the apostles. And then there are those vermin of clergymen under him, known as bishops, those horned beasts. They only possess such an honorable title because deception abounds in popery. 
If we take them at their word, they have all descended directly from the apostles. Yet we must examine what affinity there is between them. If God has authorized their calling, then they ought to bear clear and infallible testimony to this fact. However, the Pope and all his followers are found guilty of falsifying and corrupting the whole teaching of the gospel. What they call the service of God is no more than abomination in his sight. Their entire system is built on lies and gross deception, for they have been bewitched by Satan himself, as most of us are already aware. But what cloak does Satan use to cover all this evil? It is the notion that there has been a continuous succession since the days of the apostles. Thus, these bishops represent the apostles today in the church, and whatever they say must be accepted. Well, then, our task is to decide whether those who claim these things have anything in common with the apostles. If they are exercising the office of good and faithful pastors, then we will listen to them. But if they are living contrary to the pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ ordained for his church, what can we say? Oh, but they claim to be in true succession to the apostles. Then let them first prove it. They pretend to have evidence of this, but it is most flimsy. We might as well add that there were just as many of these successors in Galatia as there were in Rome. Indeed, not only there, but in several of the places where Paul had preached, in Ephesus, Colossae, Philippi, and elsewhere. So who are the apostolic successors now? If a man believes he has the privilege of being one of Paul's successors, he must surely go out and preach the gospel. He must produce evidence of the fact before people will accept him. Oh, I could go on and on, but that gives you a good flavor of, of the way that they preached. But interesting how he's taking that situation with Paul and the Judaizers and applying it to the papacy. And the papacy is telling all the reformers that you guys don't have, you guys don't have authority. We've, been, we've descended from the apostles. We have a, a straight line that we can track back to the apostles. And, and Calvin's like, your message bears no resemblance to that of the apostles. If there was a connection, it would bear a resemblance to the message, the preaching, the word of God, the gospel, right? Not some sort of direct succession that you can trace back. Anyway, we must, we must stop there, and uh, we'll come back to talk more about Paul's authority next time, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us brains that can think and ears that can hear, Lord, and I pray that we would hear and think upon your word, that all of our thoughts and meditations would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.